2: Hello and welcome to the Red Box Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, usually we try to avoid dating the podcast, but let me tell you, as we gather this week, it is 11am on Tuesday, July the 12th, and we cannot be expected to react to any events which may happen in the next 30 minutes or beyond, because, frankly, an awful lot has been happening. Three weeks ago, the polls told us Britain would vote to stay in the EU. David Cameron was Prime Minister. Boris Johnson and George Osborne were front runners to replace him. Michael Gove was spoken of as a future Deputy Prime Minister. Nigel Farage was UKIP leader. Jeremy Corbyn had a full shadow cabinet. Steve. Stephen Crabbe was a committed family man, and Adria Ledson was the Minister of State for Energy, told to smile on the TV. Now, everything. Everything, everything has changed. It barely feels possible to cover the departure of a Prime Minister, the arrival of a new one and the chaos which led up to it in just half an hour. But if anyone can, it's Times columnist and interviewer Rachel Sylvester, who of course played a key role in the events of recent days. Fellow columnist Matthew Parrish knows a thing or two about the Tory party and Lucy Fisher, the Times senior political correspondent, who's been witnessing the madness up close. Welcome to you all. I'd like to begin with what is in any political year, never mind a week, significant. We've got a new Prime Minister, the second woman, only the fifth Prime Minister in the last two decades, the Queen's 13th, Theresa May. So, Matthew Powys, what do we know about what sort of Prime Minister she'll be? Very little. She's quite an enigma. She's
3: been around for a long time. Everybody is used to dealing with her, but nobody really feels that they know her well. Cabinet Ministers, Cabinet colleagues are actually quite scared of uh, of taking her on on anything because she can be so frosty and, and so steely and so determined. Cabinet ministers, some of them complain that they, they, they send the Home Office messages and, and they get no reply from her. She, it's a kind of citadel in which she... Uh, uh, it's not that she's nasty or abusive to people, it's just that she's a cat that walks alone.
2: Being Prime Minister is a very different job to that. You can't just sort of... Sit, and actually, a lot of parallels have been drawn with gordon brown in the way that he would disappear into the treasury for long periods and particularly if there was trouble and all that sort of thing do you think that there is a there is a comparison that could be drawn there
3: yes I, th- I think she'll make the transition fine my impression is that it's going to be extremely difficult to categorize her ideologically or to say what mayism is it, it's a little bit like majorism in in some ways but it'll be very much take each issue as it comes she's Absolutely not an ideological sort of person and and I think the approach that she's adopted in the home office, which is really hard to say whether she's a she's a liberal or not she's you know she's a liberal on water cannon and she's not a liberal on m i five and m i six and and surveillance and things like that, I think it'll be the same elsewhere it'll it'll be a, a mix of policies one will get a sense of the kind of thing that she wants and I do think that John Major may be regarded as a a half-successful prototype for what Mayism may become.
1: I think that's right. She's a funny mixture of sort of very much safe pair of hands, solid, reliable, but then with flashes of risk-taking. So to continue the John Major thing, she's, she's sort of grey, 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 and then there'll be a sudden flash of colour, then more grey, grey, grey. So she took on the Police Federation for example, in that very dramatic way. She stood up to the Tory party as the nasty party. She has these occasional sort of reforming moments when she really gets the bit between her teeth. But the rest of the time it's kind of kill off any trouble, keep going, keep your head down. She's a in- phenomenally hard worker, you know, up at dawn, working through the red boxes, on on top of absolutely every detail of policy. You know, ministers who've worked with her say it's, it's impossible, she doesn't delegate, she's a-, she's a sort of control freak in that kind of Gordon Brown model. But they all rather admire her, that she's, she's absolutely on top of the detail, she doesn't ever, you know, wing it. Which is why she survived so long in that graveyard of political careers at the Home Office.
2: But being a number ten, you won't be able to micromanage everything. So that's quite. That is right. a shift. One of you know, sometimes the criticism of David Cameron is he was a bit two hands off sometimes yeah exactly yeah well and
1: also number 10 you have to be the face of the nation you have to have an emotional ability to to sort of convey how the country's feeling both domestically but also to internationally and so far she hasn't had to do that and i think that's what gordon brown didn't manage to make that transition
4: um it'd be really interesting to see whether she does lucy I feel quite confident she can do that. I think she does have more personality than people give her credit for. And I would be interested to know what you both think, and perhaps especially you, Rachel, as a woman. But my sense is there are still many challenges facing women um, in the serious kind of business of politics and policy. And I think you can't get to the top unless, like Theresa May, you keep your cards close to your chest, you keep your powder dry. As she says, you don't go drinking in the Westminster bars, you don't gossip about your colleagues over lunch... I think it's her unclubbable nature and aloofness that have allowed her to earn the grudging respect of colleagues yeah, and get to the top. Right. And when I think of some of the more sort of fun, one of the lads, senior women in David Cameron's government, such as Liz Truss, you can't see them getting above that level of being being one of the guys without being sort of knifed or somehow sullied by it. So I think Theresa May has played a canny game in a way. Um, and, and I And I sort of think we mm-hmm. will see more of her, you know, The kitten heels everyone's sort of alighting on is one of the only sort of ways in which we see her personality visibly, but... um She does also
1: have a a kind of moral purpose to her, I think. So she's the vicar's daughter, you know, incredibly diligent, but she also has that sort of sense of um, slight missionary zeal. You could see it at the Home Office when she did the work on anti-slavery and also Stop and Search, actually, where she really took on the police on their racist uh, stop-and-search policies. And I think there's uh, FGM, exactly. There's more of a kind of liberal moral purpose to her than, than perhaps people assume and also she's quite a feminist. I noticed when we did a series on the police uh, a while back and all the senior police officers now are women and she says it's not, it's not deliberate. You know, I would never promote someone who's better, you know, on the grounds of their gender, but it's a good thing, isn't it? She, you know, basically it's, it's just she happens to have alighted upon the best people who just happen to be women and actually I think that you might get a change of tone in government from, as a result of that. I,
3: I wonder if we could look at her too, not just in terms of uh, gender but also class when i was at university our college socially was rather divided into the grammar school boys of whom i was one and the public school boys it wasn't that we were unfriendly but they were a different set she's one of the grammar school people mm. and her her better friends in politics are the grammar school people mm.
1: That's really interesting, especially after the era of the posh boys, really uh, Cameron and Osborne, which I think a lot of certainly a lot of Tory MPs did find a a sort of exclusive set, didn't they? They did Mm. feel there was a kind of what they called a matocracy rather than a
4: meritocracy. I I think that's right. And we're talking about the question of what kind of prime minister will she be certainly more inclusive. I think major and valid criticism of Cameron's six years was the Notting Hill set. You know, if your face didn't fit, there was that feeling Mm. that you weren't allowed around the table. And Theresa May's made it quite clear from to the 2015 intake beyond uh, that that she's not going to play that. Well, she's not, someone,
2: she's not someone who, you know, this, there's a job to be done and she wants the best people around yeah. her to mm-hmm. do the job and we're here to do it's a job. It's not going to be
1: tokenism, but it's nor not, is she going to discriminate. Exactly, and it's mm-hmm. not
2: going to be who did she have a nice holiday with or who was she at school with, all that sort of stuff. It's not about a dinner party. We're here to do a job, that will do mm-hmm. a deal exactly, or whatever, but that's, yeah. that's, that's what needs to happen. I was really struck this week. I told my six-year-old daughter that the next Prime Minister was going to be a woman. And her first reaction was she laughed. She thought this was... Very amusing. But now she's really interested into it. And so each morning when I'm tapping away right in the red box, even in the morning, she came in this morning and, and wanted to see who the new Prime Minister was going to be. And I think maybe it's because we like to think, actually, this isn't a big deal anymore. And we don't need to make out to big. It is a big deal, the, mm. the second woman Prime Minister.
3: I know a little girl who has type 1 diabetes. And her her mother... Tells me she's absolutely thrilled that Theresa May is is going to be prime minister. She uh, identifies with yeah. her, and
2: it's a, but it's a, it's one of those things that was sort of uh, there's almost a reluctance to go overboard about the fact she's a woman because mm. that seems sort of patronising or PC gone mad. But actually, I think it is a big deal, and mm. I think the fact that, like you said, she's got there by. Not playing the game, or, or in Thatcher's case, actually behaving more like a man than a man. Sometimes yeah. she's very much her own woman.
4: Yeah, and I think it's certainly often the case. It's it's the seconds that are that really symbolise the change in tone. You know, you have often moral licence with the first. You think, well, we've ticked that box of diversity. It's all solved now. We don't need to do any more. Whereas by the time you've got second female leader of the country, yeah. we're there, aren't we?
3: But of course, <laughs> we're bubbling excitedly away about personality and what kind of a woman is she and all that kind of stuff. In, in a way, we have to dance round. The things she's going to have to do. I mean, what is she going to do about Brexit? Uh, she, what is she going the, to do about yeah. the economy, the deficit, mm. all, all these things? And, and she's
1: going to face accusations of betrayal all the way on, certainly on Brexit. Mm. She says Brexit is Brexit, but Brexit mm. can mean a million yeah. well, things. But nobody knows can't what that her. means. It's no. sort
2: of even the the, the Brexiters couldn't tell what and Brexit know, was. And I
1: I'm guessing she'll be a rational Brexiteer. So you know, mm. she she will have a sort of. She'll want as much access to the single market as possible. And if that means some free, some free movement of labour, then I can imagine mm. her doing a deal on that. I don't know what you think. I can, to, yes. For the purists, that will be an absolute betrayal, won't it? So I don't know whether she'll have trouble from the Tory party,
3: Matthew. She think? will. Mm. She will. And I, I, I think, although the talk at the moment will be how she needs to heal the party, bring people together, tokenism, bringing in people from all sides, there are some people she's going to have to kill. Uh, the, the, uh, the, 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 the europhobes are divided in into real world people, and there is a a small group we we know them, Matt, you know, twenty or thirty twenty or thirty of them who are just absolutely loopy. Yeah, and they're not going to be satisfied with anything she does, and there's no point trying to bring them in. They've just got to be killed.
2: Yes, and but it'll be interesting to see how she does deal with them. And, yes, and they won't be able to. They're not going to be able to turn on her immediately in the way that maybe they did with Cameron, because he was, you know, the Notting Hill set, and he wasn't one of them, and he, you know, he cheated his way, all that sort of stuff. Because she's, she's, she's got to number ten by literally being the last woman standing, and, <laughs> and, yes. you know, has got a <laughs> when job. the to...
1: Brexiteers had run off as well. Yes, exactly. They've all,
2: yeah. all Bunked exited, off. yeah, including Andrea Leadsom, of course. Now, Rachel, we didn't expect to know who would be the prime minister until September the ninth, but then she did the interview with you in uh, Saturday's Times in which she claimed to have more of a stake in the future because she is a mother while Theresa May of course uh, was unable to have children
0: What is the main difference between you and Theresa? In terms of the country Yeah, I think I absolutely understand how the economy works and yeah. can really focus on turning this around In terms of okay. personal qualities I think I'm you know I'm just uh you know I see myself as a one an optimist okay. and two a um you know, a huge member of a huge family, and, okay. you know, that's important. You know, my kids are a huge part of my life. My okay. sisters, my two brothers, who are half-brothers, and yeah. my mum and stepdad's sons, who are very close. You know, so it's a huge part of the family, so very kind of grounded and normal. Yeah. yeah. Um, enormously optimistic. And, and um, does your family inform your policies? Do you think about
1: well, Oh, totally, Because I, mean, yeah. I thought it was very interesting
0: during the debate, you several times said as a mum, uh, do you feel a, a, like a mum in politics? Yes. So really carefully because I am sure, I don't really know Theresa very well, but I'm sure she would be really, really sad that she doesn't have children. So mm-hmm. I don't want this to be, Andrea's got children, Teresa has, do you know what I mean? Because I think that would be really horrible. But genuinely, I feel being a mum means you have very real stake in the future of our country a tangible stake you know I mean she possibly has nieces nephews you know Mm -hmm. lots of people but I have children Mm -hmm. who are going to have children who will directly be a part of what happens next So it really keeps you focused on what are you really saying. Because what it means is you don't want a downturn, but never mind, let's have a look to the ten years hence it'll all be Fine. But my children will be starting their lives in that next ten years. So I have a real stake in the next year, the next two.
2: So, Rachel, that was the uh, audio clip of the interview that you did, which The Times released soon after the interview was published, after uh, Angela and others started questioning initially uh, what was said. Listening back to that, actually, it's completely clear that she was talking a lot about having children, of all things.
1: Well, and also I hadn't asked her. uh, My question was, what's the difference between you and Theresa May? And she then raised the subject of family and so I did then ask a follow-up question, which...
2: But the first question was, first what, why question, are you different to Theresa May? Yeah, just started um, talking about children. Were you surprised actually, at the angry reaction?
1: I was, because I thought I'd just... I'd asked a question, <laughs> you know, and I got an answer. You'd written and, down what
2: somebody said and put it in the newspaper. Yeah, yeah,
1: and I don't think that's gutter journalism. I think that's journalism, and that's what we're here to do.
3: As she was speaking to you, did you realise you were going to be the lead story on the no absolutely not although
1: i was quite shocked actually and i did think at the time that's incredibly hurtful for theresa may i was actually quite Mm. upset you know in that sense i didn't sort of think in terms of this is huge news and then we moved on to something else quite quickly you know actually listening back it's pretty clear what she she is definitely drawing the contrast
2: and also sometimes when you're doing those interviews you're I mean, as we could hear in the background, you were sitting in a coffee shop in Milton Keyes. I know, it was, the whole thing was You don't feel shambolic. like no. you're about to bring down a candidate <laughs> to be Prime Minister while people are clattering around with cups of saucers <laughs> in the background. And then you've written a piece in the the Times today where you talk about how you sort of found her, and you talk about actually being quite fragile and brittle even at that point. And obviously over the weekend, that seems to have, seems to have got worse.
1: Well, it was clear even then she was quite, as you say, brittle and quite overwhelmed by the whole experience of of the leadership contest. She'd obviously been very stung by the criticism she'd had about her questioning her CV. And she was, you know, she as soon as we sat down, I hadn't even asked about it. She launched in sort of a long <laughs> explanation. <laughs> My CV's of, true, honest. Exactly. Um, so I only um, asked if you wanted a coffee. Which was slightly odd. Yeah. But, but, and then uh, as the conversation went on, she sort of veered between being very certain and, you know, confident and then rather sort of fragile. There's one moment she was talking about her own mother, who sounds like an extraordinary woman who'd had two jobs throughout their childhood, you know, really struggled to make ends meet. And she divorced when I think um, Andrew was very young. And she started crying as she was talking about it, and said, "You know, uh, oh, I'm just very, feeling very tired. Um, you know." And I, th- I did sort of think this is day she's been doing this a few days. You've got nine weeks of a very brutal campaign coming up, and it did feel like she was she was struggling to cope with the level of pressure of that level of frontline politics, and actually quite inexperienced at dealing with it.
2: Matthew, what did you make of it? Did you did you think she was just just not? up to the task of running in a campaign like this. Is that...
3: Yeah, yeah. I I couldn't believe that she said what she had said. Politics generally has aspects of the game about it and one doesn't take things personally, but I I don't have children myself. I did feel personally offended by it. I I also thought that her instant reaction, which was kind of to deny that she'd said it or that it had meant what it seemed to mean when she did say it, such a dangerous response Mm. if you just deny things straight away I, she, she knew presumably that you were recording me yeah, <laughs> the, the conversation no and my next thought was to, to move to Epictetus who's um, an ancient Greek uh, stoic philosopher in the Roman Empire whose theory was that childless men make the best statesmen because they will have the interests of the whole of society. At heart, whereas men with what he called three grunting children will be just trying to feather their children's nests all the time. So keep people with children out of politics," said Epictetus. Mm. I like that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And Lucy, there was—I spoke to a Tory MP last night who probably falls into the category of one of the twenty or thirty particularly mad people, <laughs> um, who was completely furious about this and seemed to be blaming me personally for the fact that Angela Lansbury stood down and asked me if I could sleep at night. And I said, yes. <laughs> yes, yes,
3: quite uh, possibly soundly. Possibly all the better. Uh,
2: now, the reaction, though, to the interview was sort of real and genuine, wasn't it, over the weekend? It wasn't sort of... Very occasionally, political rows can be a bit fabricated, but this was... Real uh, anger.
4: Yeah, there's uh, huge anger at Andrea Ledson for saying that. But I think when you sort of zoom out for a moment, it's kind of awesome that she propelled herself forward for the contest. This is a woman with two years' experience as a junior minister. It's, it's extraordinary that she thought that well, she was ready to... Well, everyone else the field. Yeah. Well, quite, <laughs> She was just sort of left uh, as <laughs>
2: the last person, you know. Yeah.
4: That's right. But as she lined up yesterday, I was there Was she read out her statement, the letter she wrote to Graham Brady chairman of the 1922, pulling out of the contest. You just saw the people surrounding her and it just was so obvious that had she won, she would have been a puppet to the likes of former leaders, Ian Duncan Smith, former cabinet minister Owen Paterson. There would have been a lot of Svengali figures there um, and I think she would have had to rely on their judgment seeing as, as she showed in that interview she had pretty Poor, uh, and and developed instincts herself,
2: but it's one of those things that it, somebody who's been in the cabinet has had a tough time. They've had a tough time. In the dispatch box, they might have been duffed up by Andrew Neil occasionally and by Rachel before or whatever. And, and just you just when you're the minister in charge of energy bills and wind farms, that's you don't get that because if there's a big problem with energy. The cabinet, the energy secretary, goes out and does it. And...
1: I think the interview just exposed her flaws. It didn't, you know. It, 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 she in a way she. It showed that the lack of experience and the naivety, really, which her colleagues had already been worrying yeah. about. To be honest.
2: Well, let's let's move on because, uh, in all in all the best ways, Angela was is very much yesterday's news now. Uh, much like uh, David Cameron, who, at the age of forty nine, I worked out is the youngest Prime Minister to leave office since Earl Rosebery over one hundred and twenty years ago. After a decade as Tory leader, including six in Number Ten, his immediate legacy would, of course, be ordering the referendum which took us out of the EU. But will he be remembered for more than that? And should he, Lucy?
4: I think he's going to have a dreadful legacy, isn't he? He'll be remembered as the Prime Minister that took us, took the UK yeah. out of the EU, and that will probably lead, almost certainly lead to the breakup of the United Kingdom, Scotland, and possibly Northern Ireland breaking off. It's an extraordinary fall from grace. A year ago, he brought his party on from a coalition, winning more seats, you know, slim, but still a majority in Parliament. He was on top of the world. I I have quite a fatalistic sort of view of what's happened. I know some people say, why on earth did he call this referendum? It was so hubristic, you know, the insouciance he thought he could win. I I personally am a little bit more sympathetic. This is the problem with the Conservative Party. There is just a wing of it obsessed with Europe. He wouldn't have been able to remain as the party leader to have gone into the election leading the Conservatives without promising the referendum, in my
3: opinion. In a way, it was the party that destroyed him. Yes. Uh, rather,
2: rather than his, but the whole thing about like a, a battle of the day. If he'd have won the referendum, then he would have used that as an excuse to try and kill off finally that sort of wing of the party. Yeah,
3: though we were already saying when we thought that the referendum would be narrowly won that it would had, would not achieve its purpose in in finally uniting yeah. the Party, we were already saying that it simply opened up divisions that had been underlying before. So it, it didn't work and it wouldn't even have worked if he'd won. And, and in answer to your, your question, uh, would he, will he and should he be remembered for more than that? He, he should be remembered for much more than that. I, th- I think he's been in many ways a, a very deft and gently modernizing prime minister through a really difficult time. But But he will only be remembered for that.
1: And in a way, the sad thing is that, that um, it's the opposite of his strongest point. So I think, his, in a way, the best bits about him as Prime Minister is he's a very rational, calm, sensible um you know, centrist prime minister who did hold the country together, you know, through thick and thin, through difficult times economically, but then ironically brought down by ideology, if you like, the ideology of the Tory right um, and his inability to to win this referendum. Um, So it's rather sad that the sort of, in a way, his character strong points were then undermined, in a way, by the politics or the weak, you know, the weak points of the party.
4: Mm. I wonder if um I think we can all we all do agree that the some of the social reforms that he put through not least same sex marriage is that you know fantastic and that he suddenly should be remembered for that but I feel that there's a question mark over his and George Osborne's economic policy if we see Theresa May now introducing a more kind of looser fiscal uh, agenda I'm not sure that austerity has been the massive success that everyone thinks it has and if there's more cash injected into the economy I think it will be interesting to see what happens, and that might frame how we how we look back at. Um... I, I'm
3: not, I'm not sure I agree about that. I I, I think that uh, the pressure for governments to spend more is absolutely inexorable, <laughs> and strong and constant and un unceasing and unyielding. And all a government can do is, or all a conservative government can do is push back a little bit in the. The opposite direction. And he perhaps pushed back a, a little bit too hard. But Mrs. May, within months, is going to have to be pushing back. There'll be another NHS crisis and uh, the government will have to spend a few billion more and there'll be questions about how, how deeply we want to get into I- into debt. It's, it's a Conservative government's fate to, to push in a direction of austerity it, it, it never it never succeeds we never go in a direction of austerity <laughs> but we don't go quite as much down the primrose path to the everlasting bonfire or quite as fast as we might otherwise have done
1: the other interesting thing about him is i think he's he is a small c conservative In contrast to people like Michael Gove in the government, who were radicals, really. Um, He talked about Gove as having sort of Maoist creative destruction (laughs) instincts. And he was always really taking the path of least resistance, in a way, to the frustration of some of his people, like Steve Hilton, around Hmm. him. So he did do reforms on schools, or actually hospitals rather, you know, Mm. detrimentally to the NHS. But it was never the sort of most radical version of reform that some would have wanted. But then again, ironically, he ended up with this absolute revolution in taking Britain out of the EU. Um, And it's so, in a way, there's a sort of irony there, I think, as well. This very conservative figure ends up as the kind of most radical prime minister.
2: Is it possible if in 10 years' time the EU's in a mess and Britain is doing OK... Would that ever repair the damage done to him if Brexit is proved to be more of a success than lots of people fear it sure might be the he moment? Didn't no. it, he didn't want so it. He yeah. So that he can't is even claim the case. He for can't, That's yeah, yeah, the yeah. problem, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
4: I don't know. I, I sort of think, you know, having reflected a lot about this sort of question a lot in the past week with Chilcot and what would we all be saying if, um, if Iraq had gone better? In the execution and the outcome, I, I don't know. I sort of think maybe, although he didn't push for for leave and he supported Remain, you know, he allowed that vote. If it all turns out fine in a decade, I think I think it will be treated as bygones.
2: Because I think all the people who said, "Oh, we shouldn't have never had the referendum," I actually think the very fact we voted to leave is proof of why we should have had it. If we'd have voted eighty percent to Remain, that's a that's a referendum that was that was pointless to have. it's not just a small wing of the Conservative Party; lots of Labour voters and lots of Lib Dem voters or you know UKIP voters. Except they voters. were
1: voting for so many other things. That
2: is true. That is true. That, that, is is the, true. Um, that is the danger with winner. I'm not convinced that it's ever wise to call a
3: plebiscite that gives the, delivers the wrong result. <laughs> <laughs> but
2: it was not, it was the right result for the majority of the people who voted. Maybe. Yes, That's, but they were wrong. <laughs> well, let's not. We're not running that again. We're not rerunning that again. Now, in the last. Few months we've had not one but two members of Theresa May's campaign team on this very podcast. Katie Perrier was here uh, with us on the special advisors uh, special that we did. Uh, She did work for Boris Johnson in the past, but this time opted to back Theresa May. And she talked about the panic she felt on the day that Theresa May made her famous speech about the Conservatives being the nasty party.
0: What springs to mind was when I was working, I was quite young, I was working for Theresa May, and during her nasty party speech. Uh, right in the middle of the, the conservative party um the modernisers were pulling me this way <laughs> um the right wingers kind of were pulling me this way, and I didn't know whether to you know i didn't know what day it was and I realized at the time as she was delivering that it that it was going to be big uh, i didn't realize we'd still be talking about it kind of ten years later um but i was uh, I was young and um looking back now. Um, I think I could have probably done more to tell her that she was right but she was delivering it probably at the wrong time.
2: So Lucy, what people sometimes forget is that Theresa May was Conservative Party Chairman for a time and that that Mm -hmm. gave a real insight into the way the party worked but also the importance of bringing on women and changing the face of the party.
4: Yes, absolutely. I think, interesting, I heard um, Anne Jenkin, Baroness Anne Jenkin, who uh, runs the Women to Win Conservative Party initiative to get more women to stand for Parliament. Uh, earlier today talking about Theresa May and just saying how um, candidates from the past had had this morning been out on the on the airwaves saying that Theresa May had had written to them personally even when they'd faced obstacles failed to get elected and told them keep going you know you've got to keep persevering to get in. I think that's fascinating that she took that time to really encourage people even those that weren't necessarily going to be her colleagues in the parliamentary party. I think it's also worth reflecting on the fact that It's amazing that she's been in the cabinet for six years. She's also held major roles in the party and she's avoided all the dirty deals that usually come (laughs) with such senior roles.
2: And it's it's sort of slightly depressing that scene as a novelty that a senior politician could survive for that length of time without doing a dirty deal with someone.
4: It's true. I wonder if, in a sense, because we've seen um, a set of predominantly men running the government for the past six years from a similar social set that have known each other often not only from Oxford University but from the Eton Playing Fields or the Bullingdon Club there are different rules that that apply when there's that level of familiarity. I think we're going to see a bit more grown-up government now.
2: Fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Uh, We also uh, recently had Fiona Hill on the podcast. She was uh, famously forced to resign as a special advisor in the Home Office, but she is also playing a key role with Theresa May, likely to go into Downing Street uh, with her. When she was on the podcast, she insisted absolutely nobody tells Theresa May what to do. She is not someone to be deployed, she said. Uh, But she also uh, discussed the motivation behind her campaign against modern slavery. We talked about Theresa May and and the way that she towers over her rivals at the dispatch box what about Theresa at the dispatch box because you probably you probably watched her more you know sitting in every home office questions probably saw her more than
0: Theresa has a strong
4: voice and she's got height um, and that sounds quite
0: superficial but it actually really matters matters.
2: presence it gives you presence doesn't it And that's all we've got time for this week. Who knows what will have happened by the time we meet again. To try to keep up to date in the early days of the May era, you can subscribe to my morning briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox email. You can find us on Twitter at Times box on Facebook and, of course, subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or on your Android device. But for now, from Rachel, Matthew, Lucy and me, it's goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.